Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. This show is produced by the Powell Group, the leading business consulting firm in the gaming industry. Visit us online at IndieGame.Business to learn about our online digital events. We have some amazing sessions with people in the gaming industry, and you can participate for free and purchase inexpensive passes to our industry-leading business-to-business system. Now, here we go, Indie Game Business. Well, well, aren't you guys lucky? You're getting a masterclass right now. Story, characters, and worlds. That's kind of a switch up from the last uh, from the last one that we just did. Anyways, I would like to introduce Christian Fonisbeck. He is going to school you guys on some, some story stuff. I'm not a very good storyteller, so some story stuff. And then we're going to have a Q&A after his presentation. So, Christian, go ahead. Take it away. Thanks a lot, Jay. And thank you, Dan. So my name is Christian Fonsbeck. I am an IP consultant working out of Scandinavia, uh, working with stories, IP properties, and so on across well, most of the world, actually. We have about three American clients, a couple of Germans, and... A Swede right now. So let me get into it. I'll introduce myself a little bit more in a while. So just to, how shall I say, prime your expectations here. This is going to be a crash course. That means it's going to be, as it says here, a rapid and intense course of study. So over 40 minutes, I'm going to give you an overview of story building, including characters and worlds as well. Obviously, you're not going to walk out of this as an expert. You're not going to walk out of it as Steven Spielberg or a known novelist or something. But you will have an overview and you will start to have a vocabulary of the things you talk about when you talk about story on all levels. So fasten your seatbelts and let's do it. So the place I like to start is this. Um, if you're an indie game maker and... At this conference, I would presume that's what you are. There's two ways you want to, two reasons you want to make games, right? Either on the left, you're making art. And the reason you're making a game with a story or without is that you want to express yourself. There's something you want to say to the world, and you and your team have hopefully agreed on what it is. The other reason to go into making indie games is to make a lot of money. And if that's the case, then the story you make, you really want it to have as big an audience as possible. And of course, this is a sliding scale. So it's not either you're making art or you're making something commercial. You can be in the middle, you can be three quarters one way or whatever. The good news is the tools are the same. So whether you're making an art story or a commercial story, it's the same basic tools that you use to build that story and the characters. It's only a question of how you use them and, yeah, how you use them. So this is a story in the classical sense. So on the uh, going up, you have intensity. So, so the higher the curve is, the more intense the story is. And going right, you have time. So in a classical story... They've been made for hundreds of years. They're still being made. They're coming out as movies and games all the time. You have five acts. 
you start with act one where you're establishing all the characters and the conflicts and the goals and the enemies and everything so everybody knows what's going on then you have the first turning point which is the first red spot where we realize exactly who's trying to stop who from getting what they want and then we go into act two where things start getting complicated more and more things go wrong Act three, we're confronting, the intensity is ramping up, the fighting is ramping up, the romantic conflicts are ramping up. And then finally, uh, at the end of act three, we have the big turning point where the question that was raised at the first red point is now beginning to be resolved. So will this man catch that man? Will this girl get that boy? Will Indiana Jones find the Holy Grail? Now is the time to decide. Then we have Act 4, the desperation, everything comes to a head, and then the story is over, and you get out as fast as you can because the audience is already leaving. Now, whether you're making a 2D platformer or a point-and-click adventure or, you know, an open world with 9,000 hours of playtime, this is still the general idea of how people enjoy experiencing stories. They're kind of hardwired to do it. So whether what you are looking at now is a subplot for your open world that lasts an hour, or you're thinking about the entire open world's experience, or even you're thinking about a 2D platformer, which is a student project, and there's not going to be more than 40 minutes of playtime, this is still the general sort of shape your story should have. So print it into your mind, because it's the way things work. And... The big, perhaps the biggest challenge of being a writer in the games industry. Well, the biggest challenge is, of course, to do a great story in the middle of all the technology and gameplay and so on. But to my mind, often an even bigger challenge is to convince your boss that the story is important. And here's what I do when a boss doesn't really understand why the story is important. I mentioned the Hitman franchise. And they're based here in Copenhagen, about 10 kilometers away from where I'm sitting. They spent 20 years building a game studio. They had 150 people. They had their own game engine. I think they owned the building they were sitting in. They'd made multiple series of games. But when they sold the company to Square Enix, the rights to the Hitman character were more than 65% of the value of the entire company. That is why your boss should take your writing seriously. Because after the game has passed through the sort of initial success window and whatever, what's left, what they can actually own, is the characters and the love that people have for them. When we're seeing, you know, big franchises, you're thinking about Lara Croft or you're thinking about Super Mario or on other media, Mickey Mouse or whatever, it's the character that has the value. So even though, of course, gameplay and tech and all those things are the biggest parts of the development process, it's the emotions that are attached to this legally ownable character that become valuable. So your job as the writer is actually slap bang in the middle of the core of the company's business. It's not just art. It's also the foundations of the business. So what I get a lot after I do that little pitch is that the boss will say, well, we want to be like Clyde, right? We want to make a new game every time and start from zero and make another brilliant game. Well, 
my argument to that is number one, that's like saying we're going to be like Stanley Kubrick. We're going to make one masterpiece after another. Well, good luck with that. Maybe you can, but probably you can't. But I also have to say, Clay is doing this as well, right? Don't Starve is the same character going through the same story multiple times. I think they're on Don't Starve 3. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a Don't Starve 4 on the way. So even if you want to be like Clay, this idea of making the story the center of the world is actually something that makes sense. And people don't really go to see a universal movie, just like most of the audience doesn't really go to buy a Cly game. I know the experts and you know the art house crowd, they will go and buy an, a Cly game. But Mr. and Mrs. Smith, they don't get it. They just want to buy it, but that experience with the character again. So what we're gonna talk about, now you've convinced your boss, we're gonna do a story game. This is what I'm gonna talk about for the next 30 minutes. Who am I shortly? Then I'm gonna ask you what would Bloodborne and Subnautica do? Actually, I'm gonna answer that question. And then we'll go into the four pillars of having a premise, building a world, building characters, building story structure. Here we go. So this is me. On the left, I started out playing Dungeons & Dragons. Then I made movies for a while. And for the last 20 years, I've been making games in various different positions. I bootstrapped my own company, making uh, entertainment and learning games. I spent four years making Cloud Chamber, which was an art game, won a lot of prizes. And for the last four years or five years, I've been a consultant working with games companies all over the world, helping them to build stories. The place where it dropped for me was when I was head of IP development at uh, Nordic Film Games, or Nordic Games as they're called now where we bought six studios. And the, the challenge was, how do we take these games and make them into lasting entertainment properties? And that is where the story really comes in because there's two things here. On the left, there's the IP and the story. And on the right, there's the brand. Get these two things right and you're in business. So before we go into the building blocks, my main message here is tell the other people in the company, because I know what it's like, that the story, characters, world, and world are assets. And they need to be planned just like the graphics and code. If you're not uh, nodding now, you should be, because all too often the story is just something that's you know done over the weekend. And that's not a good idea. So what would Bloodborne and Subnautica do? Well, before we go into Bloodborne, which is my first example, just to say that the, right now there's kind of two big uh, story uh, types emerging in games. On the one hand, we have the character-driven games, like, for example, God of War 5, the latest one, where it's very much about the relationship between the characters, right? It's a father-son story. It's all about how bad uh, a parent Kratos is and, and how he learns to be better and how the relationship between these two improves. So that's what I would call a character-driven story where the focus is very much on the characters and their relationships to each other. The other type of game, um, and one that I love at least as much, if not more, is the world-driven story. And that's where something like Bloodborne is a perfect example. So the experience I get when I'm playing Bloodborne, which I do a lot, um, is that there's just this sense of never-ending mystery, right? It's all, there's always more than you can see, and the universe is a puzzle. Uh, so the more you explore, 
the more you're able to put together what it is happened. And even though you never really get it, it's not like you can write down this happened. Well, you can, but I couldn't. Um, you really feel like you're building a story, you're building knowledge about the world. So if you don't want to know what the backstory is in Bloodborne, what the story that you're putting together as you navigate it is, you should close your eyes now. I won't say it out loud and I'll tell you when you can open them. If you don't mind spoilers, well, here it is. So what's on screen now is basically the backstory of Bloodborne. And when I say Bloodborne backstory, I mean going through Bloodborne is like going around picking up fragments of what happened before you were there, right? You'll pick up a sword and it'll say something about the blood um, church and you'll pick up something else and it'll talk about the great ones and and so on. Slowly you get this feeling for how this mythology works and you understand why the buildings are all falling apart and you slowly learn what the hunt is and so on. So you're really putting together this story that happened before you got there. You can open your eyes again now if you close them. The spoiler has ended. The point is that what you're ha is happening in Bloodborne is that you are witnessing the aftermath of a greater story, right? The story isn't happening while you're there, as it was in, for example, God of War 5. The story happened before you arrived. One second. I have a cat here who really needs to get out. I think she's going to kill somebody. One minute. Go. Okay. Cat is out. Um, so the point is that you are walking through the resulting disaster after this greater story happened. And not to spoil too much, but there was these two churches, right? They had a battle, something went wrong. That's why the landscape is devastating. And that is a super effective way of world doing. And it's one you will see um, repeated again and again. You then also get a bunch of micro stories where you, you know, you find a music box or whatever, and a little story uh, unfolds. And the great thing is all these stories are built with the same tools. And Elden Ring is a great example of that because just seeing how they work with it, that they bring in uh, George Martin to write the backstory and then Miyazaki and the development team, their job is to implement it and build the world. He just built the backstory. So what I'm trying to get you to think about is when you're trying to build a world with a story in it, it's just a super important place to start is what happened before the game started. What is it that happened that makes the game necessary? So here comes another spoiler alert. This one is for Subnautica. Close your eyes if you don't want to know. Um, and Subnautica is built in exactly the same way. It's just a completely different atmosphere. It's a different kind of story, but the basic building blocks are the same. So there's an enormous backstory that happened before the player arrived. And then when the player arrives, you go through a story which allows you to unfold, figure out what happened before, but at the same time, you're also experiencing a story. So I started by telling you act one, act two, act three, and so on. And you can very clearly break down the experience of going through Subnautica into those acts. And at the same time, you're uncovering this enormous story that happened before. Spoiler is over. Everybody can open their eyes. So if you want to build something like Bloodborne or something like Subnautica or even 
a small 2D platformer with 40 minutes of gameplay that has this feeling that it's a bigger world you're moving through, then this is the advice I'd like to give you. It's that you should start with the themes and the backstory. What's this about? What happened before? What makes it interesting to be here? Why is it necessary to go on this quest or journey or whatever it is? You need to make the universe deeper than it actually needs to be so you never um, get to the end of it. Because that's what the real world is like, right? We never understand everything. There's always something more. So the trick is simply to let the parts from the past be seen in fragments and leave those some of those connections unexplained. One of the great feelings about Bloodborne and, and Subnautica is that feeling that you don't quite get it, but you can feel the logic. That is what we're looking for. So here's some easy steps to write Bloodborne, right? You start by writing a grand tragedy, right? What happened? How did society go wrong? Then you create your rough world map. What happened where? Where's Mount Doom? Where's the Shire? All these things. Then you imagine time and nature taking its course. So, <clears throat> okay, 500 years have passed since that happened. The dragon has been lying in the goal for 500 years. The village has rotted. Yarnum has gone to seed, whatever. And that gives you what does it look like now. And that's when you can start designing your levels and designing your assets. Now you can start to write micro stories. So you can start to write small stories that happened way back in the past that people can find. And you can find, write small stories about what happens now. It makes great sense in a open world. And then finally, once you have all those pieces, now you write the game narrative. You figure out, okay, in act one, the player is gonna experience this, in act two, they're gonna experience that, in act three, and so on. Even though it's an open world, and the player can choose to go any way they like, there are certain bottlenecks that will ensure that you're not getting out of Act 1 before you've achieved A, B, and C. And there you go. We can finish there. That was simple, right? Okay, we won't finish there. The point is that we're all detectives when it's talking about this sort of world building. And one of the basic pleasures here is just that so long as there really is a logic beneath it's a feature, not a bug, that you don't know everything. You don't want to know everything because the moment you know everything, it starts to get a little boring. So like Ken Levine says, answering questions is just not as interesting as asking them. But be careful, you know, don't go to like the lost TV series. They went a little too far. When you got to the end, you realize that they didn't know the answers to the questions they were asking either. And that's why everybody got angry. So now you know how to do it. However, you also have to understand how this, the individual cogs in this clockwork work. And the individual cogs are the premise, what's it about, the world, how do you build one, the characters, how do you develop them, and story structure. And that's what we're going to do now. So let's start with the premise. The premise is also called the theme. And it's really sim simply, it's just what is your story about? What is your game about? What is it you as a team of creators are trying to tell the people who play your game? And, you know, back to comparative literature studies and film studies and game studies, university students have had a lot of pleasure out of analyzing what stuff is about. But the other side of that is that the artist or artists 
need to know what it is they're saying. Because, you know, making a game is millions of decisions. And if you're not making all those decisions based on the same idea, it's just going to be a big mess. So what could be the theme of Bloodborne? Well, you know, it could be forbidden knowledge is dangerous. It seems like a lot of the game, both the gameplay and the world design and the backstory is very much centered on the idea that forbidden knowledge is dangerous. I don't know if that's the theme they worked about, but it could be. The Alien movie, the first script apparently had this written on the cover, we live as we dream alone, right? Existential horror. You, there's no help out there. Macbeth, ruthless ambition leads to its own destruction. Now, this may seem like a pointless exercise to you, but as soon as the team starts growing and you're trying to get the gameplay and the story and the sound and everything else to fit together, when everybody knows what it's about, that makes that a lot easier. And the trick about that is you actually have to believe it. As you know, I'm sure the internet is the biggest bullshit detector ever made. It's never going to work if you don't believe it. It needs to be authentic. So build a story, build a game about something you believe in. What it basically means is your game should have a purpose. And when it really works, of course, it also has to be a great game. That goes without saying then you have something that's a universal theme or that becomes a universal theme. And then it's actually repeatable. Um, you'll notice that if you're thinking commercially, even if you're thinking artistically, the, the big franchises are basically telling the same story again and again. Harry Potter is the same story seven times, right? Harry goes to school, he gets bullied, he figures out who to trust, he wins, right? Seven times in a row. Lara Croft is always looking for her father in the ruins, and Spider-Man is always defending his, well, <laughs> he's always trying to balance Auntie May with his job, with the latest girlfriend, and trying to defeat a supervillain at the same time. The thing about these universal stories, or the when you really hit one of these themes, is that you can keep moving with it. And the audience, at least large parts of the audience, actually likes that. So that was the premise. Let's move on to the world. So <clears throat> world building is, is, is ramping up fast right now. But it was actually, you know, the idea was actually pioneered by Robert E. Howard, who wrote the Conan stories. And then 15, 20 years later, Tolkien came along and supersized it and did Lord of the Rings. Um, so the idea that that they both really work from is that you treat your fictional world as if it was real. So it has its own historical timeline and it has a real logic. Um, it has a map that you can believe in and so on. So that idea is also, of course, what made Dungeons and Dragons and, and all those things possible. So that's just worth thinking about that. This is a school that's, that's had its time. And, Basically, I mean, this is Ken Levine again. A great way to look at it is to say, so there's three levels to it. The, the top level, the broadest, most mainstream level is just, you know, I'm in this world, just tell me who to kill. And you have to have that because if you don't, people don't know what to do. They get lost and only the really hardcore will figure out what to do. Then you have level two where, okay, so I know who to kill. Now I'm being told why. So this is for the audience, which is a little smaller than the first level. 
but the audience that is actually a little interested in the story, they're not super interested in the story, but you know, I'd like to know why I'm doing this. And then there's level three, which Ken Levine calls the weird kid in the back of the classroom who's writing Nirvana lyrics in his notebook. That would be me. And probably a few of you, I would imagine. And there's not that many of them, but they're important because for one thing, they're the first to arrive. They're the early adopters. And for another thing, this is the stuff that, just like in Bloodborne, gives you the feeling that the whole thing has an underlying logic. It feels real. The tricky thing is when you're experiencing it, you start from level one, right? So you're coming into a game. The first thing that hits you is just go there, find eight otter pelts and come back. And then slowly you figure out mm, there's something more going on here and you descend to level two. And then finally, if you really go hardcore, you're you're getting into wikis and YouTube sessions and so on, trying to figure out why the Church of Blood was doing whatever it was doing and so on. So from a user point of view, you come in from level one and move down to level three slowly, maybe. But when you're building it, it's the opposite, right? When you're building it, you actually need to start at level three with all the details and then slowly figure out how to simplify that and give it an overall shape and then finally give it the top line tagline, which is basically, you know, revenge your father or whatever. So even if you're aiming for a game that mainly operates on level one, you need to start at the bottom. How much time you want to put into it depends on, on the kind of game you want to make it for. So the lesson of that again is make the universe deeper than it needs to be. So now we're in the world. Um, and the world, I would break down into these five um, smaller components, which you see on the right here. So that is the tone, the mythos, the geography, the factions, and the authenticity. So let's start with the tone. Now, when I'm talking about tone, I'm talking about the vibe, the feeling, the atmosphere of the place. And this is more important than you think. I mean, if you think about why people keep going back to Dark Souls or Bloodborne or Warhammer 40K or Subway Surfer, I would say a lot of it is the mood, right? I want to go back to that mood that I enjoyed being in. And one of the great things about games, of course, is that they're super immersive. They pull you in. There's both sound and interaction. There's characters, story. There's all these things. There's gameplay. And it just puts you in a mood. And don't underestimate that. You need to figure out what is the mood you're making and how is it different? Are you just doing the same mood that everybody else is doing? Because that's not a terribly good idea because then you're competing with people who are already there. So if you have any chance to do a mood that's a little bit different, you should. It's just a huge part of what the audience experiences. And how then do you do that? Well, let's start with the mythos. So the mythos then is the mythology. So if you're making a fantasy, um, it's we're talking about the gods and how the magic works and all that sort of stuff. If you're making a business story, then it's about the corporations and what the background story there is. If it's military, it's the superpowers or whoever is fighting. So, you know, what are the rules of this universe? What are the powers that really make a difference here? And 
the way to tackle that is to do some kind of origin story. How did this world come to be? Um, do a timeline. In which order did things happen after the origin story? And then you kind of need to keep it a secret. Don't tell the player too much right away. Sometimes you have to tell them something because otherwise it would just be confusing. But there's a lot of satisfaction in discovering along the way why things are the way they are. And that leads us to the next spoiler. Because this is Bone, one of my favorite uh, comic books. Um, if you haven't read it, you should. Spoiler alert, close your eyes. Um, Bone, I think I actually have it here. Bone is a very thick comic book. Um, I think it's about 1,400 pages, something like that. And you will go through 1,173 of those pages without knowing how the world came to look like it does today. And it will be a constant source of wonder to you why the dragon acts as it does and who the locust god is and so on and so on and so on. There's just an enormous amount of questions that just keep coming up. And then on page 1173, you get the origin story. And it's about who the locust god is and it's about why the dragons are acting in the way they are. And it's about what's actually buried beneath that mountain range where the lightning seems to strike a little bit more often than anywhere else. And it's about why the world will end shortly if you don't do something. End of spoiler, you can open your eyes again. Indie Game Business has one of the longest running digital event series in the gaming industry with hundreds of publishers, investors, developers, and tech companies to meet with. All the sessions are always free to watch forever, and you can get a free pass to receive all the slide decks from all those speakers. The tickets for meetings start just at $50. Go to IndieGame.Business and use the code IGBPODCAST to get 20% off your ticket. So this is a great way to work with mythology is simply build your origin story, build the timeline for the world, and then keep it secret. Dole it out in little pieces just as you're doling out the rest of the backstory. Or reveal it all or maybe and reveal it all at a certain point so you get that aha moment. But don't reveal everything. You don't want the mystery to disappear because when the mystery disappears, things tend to get a little flat. So hold something back, leave people guessing. As I said earlier, if, if there's logic underneath, then the mystery is a feature, it's not a bar. So that leads us to the fourth, um, Oh, we've skipped geography. Well, then we'll skip geography. Um, geography, of course, is how the land lies, how the mountains got the shapes they got, and so on. That's worth getting into if that's the kind of game you're making. Or it could be how the castle it looks like it does. We'll skip that and go straight to factions and societies. So 
now you're at the point where you're populating your world and in the great games and the great worlds the great fictional worlds every part of culture makes sense and you know horizon zero dawn is a great example of this where there's there's two major factions on the one hand you've got the uh a, a matriarchal village and in this village the group comes before the individual there are many small settlements they're afraid of the old technology and then there's the other settlement which is super paternalistic um they have a sun king they're very individualistic have a big wall secret and they world secret sorry and they're embracing the old technology now the point of these examples is just that you can feel the work that's gone into making them different and you've got it, it feels authentic that they would be in conflict with each other it's not just good village bad village it's a, two different systems of belief that naturally have grown out of the world so as with all writing and everything i've talked about until now it's really about doing that work before the fact and i think one of the things that's sometimes challenging when you're you are a writer and you're trying to explain to programmers or game designers or ceos that you need more time to do this is simply that it takes time to develop these things and putting that time into a schedule is important because otherwise you're just going to be told it has to be finished tomorrow and then it just becomes this throwaway and people can feel it when it's a throwaway and that's something they really didn't do in horizon zero no they really didn't do throwaways so even you know the whole world they've clearly been thinking like anthropologists right they've been thinking about what environments these tribes started in what sort of resources they have access to what were they hunting how did the machines live there everything is very thought through and even though you know if you think about it the the concept is kind of crackpot it works because they've grounded it all right the robots aren't just random machines they look like deer and they look like recognizable dinosaurs and it seems like an ecosystem that feels kind of true because they've grounded it in reality and that brings us to authenticity which is a much overlooked element in game writing and game design and the definition of authentic is that well, which one should we take here you know the worthy acceptance or belief as conforming to or based on fact now zero in on based on fact there and going back to the previous slide we were looking at a robot that was shaped like a deer so it was no longer a random robot that we had difficulty accepting because it just looked weird no it looked like a deer it was based on fact it was based on something real and i find that this is a extremely important when you're doing fantasy or science fiction is the principle of minimal departure it's that you don't just invent something crazy and then put something else crazy next to it and because people will have trouble relating to it it doesn't feel like something from their own lives it doesn't they have nothing to connect it to so it just feels weird and this also happens when you're if you're creating fantasy based on somebody else's fantasy right so you're taking what Tolkien did and then you're just taking it another step further and another step further and so on and quite quickly it loses that grounding it has departed too far from what the reality originally was 
So my strongest advice is don't just invent out of nothing. Ground it in something real. Find a real city or historical event or mythology or something to ground it in because it just gives it that sense that it feels real. And then at the same time, don't just copy it, right? You don't just pick up the first thing you find because then it becomes well, you can be pretty sure it's been done a thousand times. You want to do something a little more unique. Okay, so I've got six minutes left. I'm going to have a little bit of coffee. Let's get into the characters. So <clears throat> characters. The best game characters and characters from any medium are unique, memorable, relatable. And that's easy to say, but it's difficult to develop. Another element is, again, one of those boss arguments, which is that they need to be ownable. And this is something that we indie game makers don't think enough about. And the problem is, of course, you make a great game and you've got a knight in it and it looks like everybody else's knight, but hell, it's a game about knights. And then you get a hit, sell a million units, and then there's nothing to own because you can't copyright a, a knight that looks like everybody else's knight. Well, you can copy it. You can't trademark it. You can't defend it in a court of law. And that is a killer. If we go back to the Hitman example, speaking of killers, then he is ownable. He has a suit, a red tie, a barcode in the back of his head. He's bald. He's got twin silver guns. That's a unique look. If anybody else does anything like that, you can take him to court and you can win. That means Hitman and all the millions of hours spent with him are ownable because now we have an IP, an intellectual property. So that's the argument for you spending time on the character. It needs to be interesting. It needs to be unique. And then as a writer, we go into relatability. And relatable is kind of a dirty word in some places because it's just overused but it's overused for a reason being relatable is how we make a human connection right it means that the emotions the character has the problems the character has are something we can recognize from our own lives the emotions the private natures the relationships between the characters these things are important this is what you build a character around so if you want to start, there are these three aspects, right? There's the physiology. How does the character, how is the character physically put together? There's the sociology, which is how did he or she grow up? Uh, how were they educated? What happened along the way? How were they brought up? And then there's the psychology. What are the internal problems that this character has and so on? And if you're making a 2D platform, or maybe you don't think this is so important, unless you know, you're actually thinking about making this character someone who returns from game to game. And then actually it is important. You may only let these things out in single little lines or it may come out in some other way, but it's important to know that's what gives this um, feeling of cohesiveness. Right, so we have ownable characters. We have a world that's authentic and full of mystery. We have a premise, we know what it's about. Let's build the story structure. 
So even in linear stories such as books and movies, there are multiple layers of storage. So you will have an A plot, which is exactly like the first story I told you. Um, it has a bang at the start and it builds towards a climax and so on. And then you have a B plot, which is a smaller story, maybe a romantic interest or something. And you have a C plot, which could be a relationship to a parent or whatever. And this could transfer easily to games. You know, you have the main story and then you have smaller stories that you skip in and out of. Or it's a big open world game and some stories are located in some places and other stories are located in other places. But there's a big story tying it all together. And a word about setups when you're structuring this, because it often the, it often gets ignored a little bit that where you are in a story is extremely important for how it's experienced. And one of the big challenges I often see with uh, game developers is that they're building a vertical slice, which is not the start of the story. And I understand that. There are points later in the game that are more interesting from a gameplay perspective or a level design perspective, or you know, the character has leveled up and has a certain amount of power and so on. But what's tricky about doing that from a story point of view is that if you jump into the middle of a story, it's very difficult to actually get engaged with it. So I like to use the, uh, the fugitive as an example. And the point is that in the act one, you're establishing everything, right? You're getting to know who's the main character, what does he want, who's the guy coming after him, and so on. And what will often happen is that the vertical slice of the game is actually being part of act two. So it's after you've gotten over that first bit and you've gotten all that figured out, now you're just in the middle of the story and if you're the fugitive you're on the run but if you're doing a vertical slice and you're just on the run it's very difficult to care about it because you don't know why and you need to address this when you're talking to your team you need to figure out if we're doing a vertical slice that is not the start of the game how do we get anybody to give a shit about the story because it's the start of the story that makes people care so this is probably why the vertical slice of God of War 5 was the start of the game, because they needed to establish that and the story was so important. So it's worth thinking about. We're going to skip this. I think we're at 40 minutes. So we have the big picture here. You start with the premise, you build your mythos and backstory, you do a rough map, you do the middle story, what happened since, you make a map of what the world looks like now, you start outlining your main characters and the conflict, and then you finish up with an IP driver. The dirty secret, of course, is that stories are not written, they are rewritten. So you've done it once, you do it again, you do it again, you do it again, and you keep getting feedback from different parts of the team and half the scope keeps changing and the gameplay keeps changing. So of course you're iterating. One thing I would strongly recommend is get qualified feedback in from a story perspective, because if you're only getting feedback from the game designers and the programmers and the technology, what often happens is that the story just gets slowly mangled until it's unrecognizable because all those other guys and girls aren't necessarily qualified in story. So get an outside consultant or a story editor to come in once in a while, because otherwise you'll be alone as the writer and that's a tough place to be. That's it. Remember your story characters and walls are assets. Remember that there's a very good argument for doing a good story and a character because that's actually where the value is long-term. Uh, I have a Facebook group. 
And here's my email. I can't really stay for the Discord discussion, but I'm ready for a Q&A now. Q&A time. Thanks, Christian. All right, we've got a couple good questions here. Let's pop this out of here. There we are. Um, here's a question from Jay. How are NFTs factoring into IP ownership? Well, actually, I'm working with two different NFT clients right now. Um, Obviously, the obvious answer is that NFTs are very much about IPs because it's all about what can you own as a player. Mm. Um, so what we're seeing is that um, they're actually very focused on building universal stories, as I said. They, wanna, they want these uh, worlds and characters to be something that a larger audience is interested in. Um, and that means it actually makes a lot of sense to go in and use some of these tools to say, okay, well... You know, if you want a large audience to be interested, you want to do this with the characters, you want to broaden out the interest in this way, You maybe you can get a bigger audience by doing this with the world. And then, of course, the brand becomes quite important. How do you communicate this character to the market? You know, what's the right sort of key visual on the logo and so on? So these two things together means that, yeah, we're, we're actually working with that quite a lot. But there is there's one really tricky thing about NFTs that I can see, which is that the early adopter audience for NFTs is quite is even more different than normal than, from the rest of the audience because the people the early adopters of NFTs are, are almost investing in your game right they're hoping it will become more valuable later they're buying a piece of land or building a character and they're hoping to sell it later so that means the 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 audience you're building at the start is actually different from the audience that's actually going to come in and make it valuable later and that's quite tricky because it means that, you know, the way you communicate with the market, the early adopter market you're going out to is different than the mass audience you're going to be addressing later. So, yeah, that's something we've been working with quite a lot. Well, I mean, you can even see how NFTs are evolving in that way. Like when it first started out, you know, it's like it, it started and it became about community and collections. Right. And now it's like there has to be layers added on top of that. Because now, yeah. if you go it's like to OpenSea and for let's example, let's take a board ape, for example, right? Which is huge, right? The whole ape mm. series is huge. And uh, everybody tried to copy that. There's so many copies of that with different characters, different. They're all in like one position, one thing. But now it's, it's like growing to be, there's got to be some kind of a story. There's got to be some kind of, to, because now, it, like you said, the first adopters are different than everybody else that is like, oh, let's check this stuff out now. You know, I <laughs> yeah. find that super That's interesting. Loose. All it right. It's moving fast. Yes, it's moving super fast. And cryptocurrency is just insane right is now. Is that Oscar Clark? What's that? Well, I'm, I, I've got a message here from Athanateus. Yes, I just pulled is... that up there. Christian, you described character versus world-driven stories. Where would you put games like Papers, Please? That's a good question. I don't know. Um, I guess I would call it a world building game because as you're going through that mechanic, you're learning how repressive the system really is. And it doesn't explore a single character. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you get to dive into a lot of different characters and their personal stories, right? Um, yeah, I think I would, I would call that... That's a, a good question. It's like a multi-character story, but... It, the characters are used to describe the world. Right. Yeah. You wrong-footed me with that one. 
Good right, one. That was a good one. Uh, and then when you, people were commenting, when you're letting the cat out, freedom for whiskers, Re- <laughs> release the cat at. Um, here's another good one. Wee Wee's the secret weapon. Yes, I like that one. She is. She is the secret weapon. Yeah. Okay. So here's another one from Athanasius. I feel it's different as it's the interaction the player takes against actions that are in the world. I feel it's between the two. Hmm. Yeah, I buy that. Good point. All right, let's see. He's here. talking about papers, please. Still, yes. Uh, let's see here. Do, do, do. Oh, here's a good comment. You need the mystery, or it's just history. Um. Yeah. Let's see here. That's a nice one. We need a T-shirt with that one. Oh, here's something good to comment on. I think the best part of a character is when people start doing parodies of that character. But I know some branding folks don't like that. I mean, if you're getting parodies on something, then you know that it's made an impact, right? Yeah. But we're, I mean, in the early days of the internet, Disney was suing kids because they were putting up pictures of their favorite Disney characters on the net. Uh, but they wised up. Right. Right. Because that's, yeah. You, you, because you got to go with fans. Fans are good. Right, it's a, and, and people are doing that and doing cosplay. It's like, why would you want to squish that community? Here we go. Exactly. Uh, from Amy Milena on YouTube, where do I start to organize a branch story where the player makes choices that change the narrative? Where do you start? I mean, you do it on a, on a branching tree spreadsheet or, you know, something like that. Um, I think... Personally, and this is just me, I think the advantages of having a huge branching tree are greatly overrated. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most people will not, you know, care that they're more or less experiencing the same story as everybody else with minor variations. The point of making a huge branching tree or the problem with it is that it's enormously expensive, right? You have to make all these different assets but each person is only experiencing one part of that. So in principle, you're wasting a lot of those resources. So for me, a, a branching tree, I'm trying to get the direction right here on the camera, a branching tree should be more like it's, it's going like this, right? So it's, it's branching a little and then it's joining itself again. Because why waste all those great resources? Kind of like... Give people like, the illusion of choice, but maybe not... Like the way Skyrim brings everything sort of together, right? There's little store, little pockets of stories here and there, but it all goes along some kind of main storyline that people either choose to or choose not to follow. Exactly. Right? When I first played Skyrim, I I didn't I didn't I because I just I went off in a complete different direction. I was like level twelve or fifteen before I even just figured out that I could get magic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so you guys drop some questions in the chat. We have like 10 minutes left. We don't have a lot of questions coming up. So um, Athanateus says, well, we can't answer that because I don't know where that came from. Um, David Vino, (laughs) here's a question. How do you define or find a universal theme? Well, I I guess that's really a question of, is this a theme that a lot of people can recognize? That's what it's about. So, you know, there comes, of course, a point where it's so universal that it's actually kind of boring. Um, You know, the universal romantic theme is boy meets girl, boy loses girl, 
boy gets girl back, right? Will will you find love or not? That's maybe too universal. But of course, then you can start making it specific by hanging very specific problems on it and so on. I would say Harry Potter is about bullying, basically. If there's one theme that just keeps on coming through uh, Harry Potter, it's something with bullying and friends. And that's pretty universal, right? I mean, not everybody's been bullied, but everybody knows what bullying is or they've mm-hmm. seen it happen or they've heard about it or something like that. And that means it's universal because a lot of people can relate to it. The fewer people can relate to something, the less universal it is. That's your asset test. Right. Oh, here's a good one. Jay is dropping a good question here for us. Are there best practices for developing stories in roguelike games where so much is repeated or different in each run? Well, my feeling is that Hades has really moved the bar so much on this that we're still trying to figure out how to do it. Because before Hades, you know, every time you started the game on a a new run, you would start the same story again. But on Hades, the story continues even though you die, right? And the other characters are aware that you just died again and they're commiserating with you and your relationship with them has moved on. So the story just keeps going. And that's actually a whole new paradigm. And just to put it into perspective, there's more words in Hades than there is in the Quran, right? This is not some small piece of weekend writing. This is a huge task. It's an extremely big story. Um, So I think actually, you know, for me, I can't even imagine a roguelike story that doesn't do what Hades does anymore. But it's too early to have best practices because, you know, the games inspired by Hades haven't even started coming out yet. I know that's kind of cheating, but it's the best answer I can do, I think. Oh, Div, he's got a comment. Objection! Hades made it popular. Dwarf Fortress had it before. Yeah. Yeah, but but does... I mean, the, the difference is that Hades has a written story where Dwarf Fortress is more of a procedural story, right? The story emerges through the interaction between a million different systems. Some of them are tectonic and some of them are monster-based and some of them are dwarf-based and so on. And together they make a story. So it's not really a written story as such. So I think those two games are about as different as they can be while both being in principle roguelikes. I, I I don't really think they can be compared, to be honest. Oh, here's a funny challenge comment. me on this. I'm ready. How did I get here? <laughs> well, first, yeah, your mom and your well, dad. Well, you, you played a lot of games as a kid, right? And then you realized that games were fun. And then you started thinking about you want to make them yourself. And now you're realizing they're actually kind of complicated. Yeah, but that's the fun, right? Right. It was easy. All right. So here Nobody we go from D.E. Newton. Who do you think is doing some interesting things in game writing that people might not have noticed yet? Well, the obvious answer to that is Inkle, I think, in the UK. Um, They made a lot of sort of, originally they were making sort of choose-your-own-adventure text, but they just got more and more advanced. And if you look at their latest games, I'm not even sure what to call what they're doing because they're 
doing stuff that nobody else is doing. Um, they also have their own game writing system uh, called Ink, which I'm told is pretty good. Um, yeah, that's 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 one of the things that. But apart from that, I mean, I think the thing that people underestimate in writing is how much of writing and world building are actually connected. Um, you know, nobody really speaks about Bloodborne as a great piece of writing, but it is, I think. Um, it's just not as linear as something like God of War. And then, of course, right now it's Hades. I mean, Hades blew the doors off the whole category, if you ask me. It's a good game, too. It's very appealing looking. All right, so here we go. Yeah. From a, a question about Ethernet Hayes. Uh, I couldn't address it earlier because I didn't know what it was. Uh, the question is asking related to the story arc in the talk. Follows the five-act structure, as he recalls. There are other models, <laughs> including Heroes, Journey, Save the Cat, etc. Do we need to try different models for games than film or TV? I think absolutely. And I think whatever works for you, you should do it. Um, I think the five-act model is, is still as relevant as it's ever been because it basically just works. Um, but I'm not sure that people would recognize it even though they're going through it. You know, I mean, if you apply it to an open world game and you're breaking all these different levels into roughly five acts, not many people will realize that because they spend so long, you know, on different side quests and so on that it, it doesn't feel like you're being pushed through a, a schematic format. Um, but whatever works for you, you know, that's that's important. Right. So we do got about four minutes left. Do you have any final thoughts, any final words, any final sage, sagical, is that even a real word? Some sage advice for, for people I, out there. I think it is. Yeah, that is that is a real word. Yeah. Can I can I share screen again? Sure, sure. Or is that or are those days gone? Those no, no, uh, I got you. I got you. Okay. So I mean, the thing that comes back to me, and it is because I've just seen writers all over struggling to get the importance of story to be recognized by the rest of the team. I mean, I've lost count of how many times I'm coming into a team of 15 people, 50 people, 100 people, and there's one writer. And the one writer is not a partner or a director or anything like that. They've been hired for the job. And they're just struggling to get the rest of the team to understand that the story is important. And what will often happen is that that writer will be overruled on a daily basis because the head of combat or, you know, the creative director or whatever, they saw something on TV last night that they think is kind of cool. So they're going to rip out the middle of your story and replace it with a plastic monkey. That happens all the time. And then at the end of the process, nobody understands why the story isn't good. Well, the story isn't good because nobody listened to the damn writer. So how I try to explain this to the bosses and the combat directors and so on is to say, well, here's your idea, right? That's you on the mountainside and you're dreaming of making a hit game. The problem is that once you made that hit game, you realize that that wasn't actually what you wanted. What you wanted was a sustainable company that could make a living off making games like this and that means that a hit game is actually only the first milestone on getting to a lasting entertainment property 
And the challenge then becomes that in order to get to the lasting entertainment property, you need all these things that I've just been talking about for 40, 40 minutes. But because you didn't listen to the writer, you didn't do them. So now you have a hit game, but it's over because there's no character to, to bring on to the next. Nobody loves the character. There was only gameplay and an anonymous knight. So that's really my point here is that it's important to have a hit game, yes. But if you want to have a long career or have a company, you need to start taking the stories seriously. Um, I like that. That, that would be a good, a good title for a talk. Gameplay and an anonymous knight. <laughs> yeah, we'll kill you. All right, so here we go. Well, there's a comment. Two Flower Games. I was interviewing for an RTS game dev job recently, and they outright told me writing isn't at all important. And that's like the 10th time I've heard that from head devs. Um, how popular are their games? <laughs> I mean, there, well, there saying, are. I'm not saying there's, there's some games that, you know, that don't have good writing that aren't good, because there are. But personally, like, I know the big thing is Call of Duty, multiplayer. I personally, my favorite kind of games are single player, going through an adventure, the story. Sometimes I'll just play it on easy just because I like the story, right? That That's the kind yeah. of stuff. Like A Plague Tale. I thought that was great, right? I thought that was very was. Im immersive. It was really good. I'm excited for the next one. Um, but I guess we just have to admit it's not for everybody. It's and if, if you're talking about, if you're talking to a company that says story is not important and your job is to be a writer, you're probably not going to have a good time. World of Warcraft hire in-house historians because the stuff is so important. Oh, they have, they have lore masters. I wonder how many yeah. lore masters they have working, right, for all the stories. Same with World of Tanks. Yeah, I would imagine so. Right. You know what? Thank you so much, everybody. Like Christian said, uh, did you want to... Um, he's not going to be in Discord after this, uh, but we've got we've got something coming up exciting. Jay will be here. Thank you so much, Kristen. You are in Discord, though, right? I am on. Um, yeah, but it would be better to send me an email. Okay. Um, yeah. Did you want to hit you? What's your email, real quick? It's right here. All right. Let's share that really quick. Christian at funespec.dk. Okay, I can't spell that so. Oh, what is the Discord? The Discord is discord.gg slash Indie Game Business. And thanks so much, Kristen. Thank you. Enjoy, it was a pleasure. Your, your short vacation. Will do. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at indiegame.business.